Morning. How are you? Good? All right, that's good. Uh, hey, this morning we are continuing in uh, the book of Luke in the Bible, and we've come to another passage about authority, which is something that Jesus kind of talks about a lot, and it's because how you answer this question of who's in charge of my life has incredible implications on how you actually live your life. So everybody grab a Bible. There's a Bible in the chairs uh, in front of you. Uh, Or if you brought your own or you're going to use your phone, grab something. We want you to look at the text. Uh, If you grab the Bibles from here, we're going to be on page uh, 718 this morning. And today's passage is directly connected to the passage we covered last week, which really is one of the great bonuses of walking through the Bible like this, because you get to study a passage set in its original context. So last week's passage, if you were here, uh, and I know some of you, maybe your very first time today, that's great, we're glad you're here, but if you were here, uh, was a passage about authority. The religious leaders come up to Jesus and they say, who gave you this authority? Who gave you the authority to tell people how to live and how to connect with God? And they ask that because they think they have the authority to do those sort of things. But Jesus, because he's the son of God, has all authority in heaven and on earth earth. So as we begin today's passage, you're going to see that this takes place a mere seconds after last week. And in fact, it's really the same conversation is just continuing. So here we go. Page 718. Uh, we're Luke chapter 20. So find the big 20 on that page and then uh, look down to find the small nine. And that's where we will uh, join the passage again. Here's what it says. So says he is talking about Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. Uh, a parable is like a, a story with that teaches something. He says, a man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit to the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? Now, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Okay. So let's try and get our bearings here in this parable and kind of figure out who is who. So the vineyard owner, that's God the Father. He's the owner of the vineyard. Uh, The vineyard essentially represents uh, all of God's chosen people, who at this time in history, it's the people of Israel. And you actually see that a lot in the Old Testament. The vineyard is always God's people. You see that in uh, Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2. Well, it's the people of Israel are the vineyard. Uh, the tenants, so the people that were managing the vineyard while the owner is away, uh, those are the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The people said, oh, he's talking about us <laughs> when he tells it at the end. 
These are the Pharisees, uh, the chief priests, the elders, uh, the very people that Jesus started talking to when he began this chapter, uh, or this, this part of uh, chapter 20. Uh, the servant that the owner, the servants, I should say plural, that the owner sends to collect the fruit of his vineyard, those are God's messengers throughout history, uh, namely the prophets. And we read in the Old Testament that a lot of the times, maybe even most of the time, when God sends sends prophets to earth, they are, or they're from earth, but when God sends them, uh, they're beaten, they're mistreated. Uh, even Jeremiah the prophet is thrown in a pit. And then the son of the owner in this parable, the one whom the tenants kill, is Jesus Christ, the son of God. They, in the parable, they throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. And uh, that's exactly what they did with Jesus. They caught him in the garden, took him out of the city, and killed him. Jesus then says that after the son's death, that the owner will give the vineyard to others. Uh, Matthew uh, also tells this parable, uh, has Jesus telling this parable in his gospel, and he gives us one extra detail. I'm going to read this to you. It's from Matthew 21, 43. He says, therefore, this is Jesus, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And that's primarily what happens in history, right? The center of God's movement moves away from the Jewish people to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Okay, so the main issue, the main sort of tension, main teaching point of this parable is that the tenants want to be in control of the vineyard. They want to dismiss the owner, right? They Ultimately, they want the fruits of their labor for themselves, this is a parable that I think forces us to ask tough questions, like, what will you do with God? Is God in charge of your life? Is God truly the leader of your life? Who is your life for? You Think about this. The tenants, the ones who worked the vineyard, they didn't create the vineyard, right? They don't own it. You think about your life. You didn't create your life. You didn't cause yourself to exist, You didn't put breath in your lungs. You didn't determine when you would be born or where you would be born or to whom you would be born. You you can't even determine the fact that you're still living right now. God is our creator. You are God's. Uh, The Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, explains it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's speaking to Christians. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. It's the death of Jesus. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so the purpose of your life, this is high-level important stuff here. The purpose of your life is for you to bring glory to God with your life. God is the owner of your life, and so the fruit of your life, and we use that expression a lot in this passage and today, the fruit of your life, that means like the actions of your life, how you live your life, is meant to bring praise and honor and glory to God. That's the purpose of your life. But listen, this is so different than how most people live, right? I mean, it's crazy different. From childhood, most people are taught that the purpose of life is almost anything but that. Now, it depends a little bit on where you're born and 
into which culture you're born into. So if you think about a lot of collectivist societies, so a lot of people who grow up in Asia, parts of Africa, parts of South America, you know, in those societies, children are taught that their main purpose in life is to bring honor to their families or the community. That is their purpose. And their greatest fear is that they would bring shame to their family or their community. Well, let me give you an entirely different culture. You think about the millions of people who grew up in communist Europe during the Cold War. Like in East Germany, for example, uh, which is, you know, where Lutheranism began, Martin Luther. Uh, in those days, you know, most kids went through confirmation classes. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you grew up in a Lutheran church? Anybody in here? Oh, look at you, a whole bunch of you. Okay, so you, you know confirmation, right? You go to confirmation classes, and many other churches have it. The Methodist church has it, and others. So 7th and 8th grade, some, some churches it's ninth grade. You go through these classes, and you, you learn about Scripture and the Bible and what it is to, you know, hopefully you're learning what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Well, when communism took over in Europe, and particularly in, Eastern, in East Germany, what they did is they didn't just stamp out the church— and that was their goal because Christians have an authority that is higher than the government, right? So that's got to go away. But they replaced it with something else. So they kept confirmation classes. They weren't at the church anymore, but it was a new confirmation. And kids still in 7th and 8th grade or ninth grade would now go to confirmation classes. They kept the name the same. But they learned that their life's purpose was to live for the state, for the government. And that was the new confirmation then kids grew up thinking that was their purpose in life we think about kids who grow up in the west so i'm talking about you know western europe united states canada most kids who grow up in those societies believe ultimately that the purpose of their life is to live for whom themselves right that's our culture i mean think about how we talk to kids um we talk to kids you know, almost endlessly nowadays, when we dream with them about their future, we dream with them about themselves and what they might accomplish for themselves, right? You take athletics, uh, for example. You know, how often do we talk to kids and say, oh, man, just wait till you make that traveling team? Or can you imagine in varsity someday? Or when you get a scholarship to college? You know, for other families, it's not sports, it's maybe academics, right? And you're always talking about different schools they might get into, you know, for a lot of people, we get really focused as kids get older on career. I was thinking the other day <clears throat> that, you know, a lot of us talk to our kids. You know, I know many of you have kids that are grown, but for those of you that still have younger kids or kids in school, we use this phrase a lot. We say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, we ought to start saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? Not who you want to be. You, you think about teenagers nowadays, and there's a million studies and journals on this that kids have so much anxiety today because there's so much pressure on them and i think we ought to relieve some pressure if we start saying what do you want to do not necessarily who do you want to be because when they grow up they may do medical work they may do construction work they may do educational work but who will they be that's a bigger question in life will they be someone with character will they be someone who trusts god Will they be someone who loves Jesus? Who will they be? You know, if my three kids 
all grow up to be brain surgeons someday, which, <clears throat> given my genetics, highly likely. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. My wife is super smart. Uh, if they all grow up to be brain surgeons someday, but they don't follow Christ, I will be absolutely devastated as a parent. Because the goal of life is not to live for yourself and be successful. And what happens when you spend your whole life just thinking about you and the idea that your life is for you? Well, what happens is when you come to a truly biblical concept, like we're talking about today, that God is your maker, he's your creator, he's your master, and that actually your number one purpose in life is to live for him, produce fruit for him, bring glory to him, we can say, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. That makes sense. But it's almost foreign to us because we don't live that way. And many of you that grew up in Christian homes, and apparently all of you grew up in Lutheran homes, um, we, we still don't even get it, right? Because even a lot of our parents, it's like, oh, yeah, they took us to church once in a while or, you know, every week even. And they maybe give lip service to God, but mostly they talk to us about sports and social skills and our future career. When truthfully, here's what they really should have been talking to us about. And those of you that still have kids in the house, I'm saying this to you right now. They should have been teaching us first and foremost how to surrender to God. How to trust God through life's ups and downs. How to put God first in all things in your life. How to fall in love with Jesus and sustain a relationship with him. Because you know... You can still have a really high-paying job and be miserable. And I bet your guidance counselor in high school never told you that. Because that's not the way we think about it in society. We're just asking the wrong questions. And we underestimate the sinfulness of our hearts. You know, our hearts, just like the hearts of the tenants in this parable, they they tend to gravitate towards wanting to be in charge, right? The tenants, this is verse 14. They see the son coming. They think, let's kill him because then the inheritance will be ours. This is what the human heart wants. Our sinful, selfish hearts. We want to be rid of all this talk about our life being for the glory of God. Some of you don't even like this message right now. I don't like, I just, and why is that? It's because, well, it's our vineyard. We're doing the work. I should get to decide. It's for me. I mentioned a shocking question earlier, and it's actually been staring at you on the screen for the last 10 minutes or so. And I want to ask this question again. Who is your life for? I actually think this question is earth-shattering if you really take the time to think about it and let it actually penetrate your life and how you live, who is your life for? This is the question of our passage. This is the question of the vineyard. Okay, to the tenants in the vineyard, they think that the fruit of their labor, that all of their hard work, the fruit of it, they think it ought to be for them. That's why they're so frustrated with the owner. That's why they want to get rid of him. Because they think the fruit of their labor should be for them. We essentially, maybe without knowing it, but we do the same thing. I think the reason that God does so little 
in so many of our lives is because we just can't seem to let go of the fact that our lives aren't ultimately meant for us. Who is your life for? You ever think about this when you make big decisions in your life? Like getting married, where you're going to live, what you're going to do, how you're going to spend your time? You ever ask this question, well, who's my life for? A lot of us don't. We just assume our lives are for us. So why would I even ask this question? Who is your life for? I'll, I'll tell you a couple things your life is not for. Uh, your life is not for your parents. The purpose of your life is not to make your parents happy. Some of you have just been living under that lie for a long, long time. And some of you are even taking that lie and then you're projecting it onto your own children. And they feel like the purpose of their life is to make you happy. Yes, it's a biblical command. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. But the purpose of your life, your life is not for your parents. Your life is not for the culture. Your life is not for the community. Your life is not for the government. Your life is not for you. Your life is ultimately for God. It's meant to be lived for the glory of God. Your, your life is meant to be a life that would yield such fruit with its actions that it would bring praise and honor and glory to God. And this brings us, I think, to what I would call the great paradox of Christianity. And that's this. When you recognize this, and I don't just mean like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I'm saying like when you truly understand and recognize this truth in your head and your heart, that your life is meant to be for God, it's when you recognize that, that you truly come alive. But I find the vast majority of Christians never get there. Because surrender to God, saying, no, my life is not for me, my life is for you. Surrender like that sounds like death to most of us. Like, well, that sounds awful. That's why a lot of you don't like this message. doesn't sound good to us. Who wants to turn over their will to somebody else? It sounds like death to us. We'd rather hold on to the fruit of our own life than give it back to the owner. But Jesus speaks often like this in, in paradox or in great reversals sometimes. Right? What does he say? He says, well, actually the last will be first. He will just set their desires aside. Right? He says, well, actually the humble will be exalted. And Paul says to die is gain. But you can't find that sort of gain in your life until you can answer this question correctly. Who is your life for? Every single one of us is either trying to take the fruit of the vineyard for ourselves or give it back to the owner. Which one are you? Who is your life for? Jesus helps us understand this a little bit better as he goes into verse 17 and 18. He says this, I'm going to look at it again. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 here. It's actually the same psalm about Jesus, the Messiah, riding in and Hosanna and all that stuff. And he's saying that he is the cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone 
in those days was the stone that builders used at the corner of the building. And what it did is it bared the weight and the stress of where two walls came together. And it was the stone that you would lay first. It was the stone that kept the whole building together, the cornerstone. Is Jesus Christ the cornerstone of your life? Is Jesus the one you put first? Do you put his priorities, his way of life, his teachings first in your life and then build the rest of your life all around Jesus, the cornerstone? Uh, For those of you that when I keep asking, who is your life for? If in your heart you're going, I want to say Jesus, this this is how you do it. He's telling us right now, what you do is you have to make him the cornerstone. That's the practical side of this. You make Jesus the cornerstone. You put him first. And one of the things I think we have to do is figure out, okay, where am I not doing that? I want to give you a prayer exercise you can do anytime this week. In fact, I want to throw some questions on the screen for you that I want you to ask God these questions this week. It would take 10 minutes. You can do it tonight. You can do it tomorrow morning. You're eating breakfast on your commute. Take a picture of this or write this down or you can always go on our website and, you know, pull the podcast back up. We even have the transcript on, on the website. We want you to ask God these three questions in prayer. Just say, Lord, where am I living for myself and not you? Would you show me, Holy Spirit, where that is? Where do I need to put you first? Just say, God, convict me. That's a good prayer to pray. God, convict me. Where am I putting you fourth or fifth? And I need to put you first. And then ask, God, how can I produce fruit for you? In other words, to live for you, not for me. Because, Lord, my life is for you. So look at verse 18, if you still have the Bible in front of you. So Jesus had just said, he's the cornerstone. But then look at this really interesting verse. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. To surrender your life to Jesus Christ, to make him your cornerstone, to come fully under the authority of Jesus, is to be broken, as the Bible says. It is to let your own dreams and desires be broken, shattered, to fall apart, so you can align with his will instead. And we've just taken a surgical knife here with the word of God, and we've just dove in again. This is yet another reason why so many of us do not want to fully surrender to God. Because I say, you've got to let your dreams and desires be broken. You go, I don't like that. I don't want that. Why, Why would I give up those things? Because we want to understand that when you come fully under Jesus, and you let go of your desires... It is not a loss. There is no better place to be than in the will of God. There's no better place to be than in the will of God. Everywhere God asks you to go is better than where you would go. Everything God asks you to do is better than what you would do. Trust me, God is a better leader than you are. And his dreams for your life, his desires for your life are better than what yours are. 
There's no better place to be than in the will of God. But to do that, you have to surrender to say, I think you know better than me. I'm going to surrender to you, even when it doesn't make sense. I'm going to make you my cornerstone. And if you do this, you determine that your life is for Jesus, and you make Jesus, you actually do it, you make Jesus. You're not going to do it perfectly, but you try and make Jesus the cornerstone of your life. He will build a beautiful building with your life. And that people will look at the building in your life and go, wow. That's God, and God will be glorified with your life. But that only happens when you put him as the cornerstone. But if you do what most of us do, and you determine that ultimately your life is for you and your dreams and your pursuits and your desires, and yeah, you're a Christian, and so you, you've got all, you're the cornerstone, and there's about 15 other stones, and you throw Jesus onto some decorative piece somewhere, then what will happen is your life will be like what Jesus teaches in Matthew 7. That's like building your life on the shifting sand, not on the rock that is Jesus Christ. There's more I want to talk about in this passage, and I think there's some good questions for us, but I want to pause for a few minutes because I don't want this to be theoretical. I want this to be practical, actual, and real for you. And what I want to do is I want to share with you a story of someone who's made a decision to make Jesus their cornerstone. In fact, what I want to do is I want to call our, our baptismal team on stage right now because this is yet another baptism Sunday for us. We are baptizing a ton of people lately, which I think is great. That's what we're supposed to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so right now, you're going to get to hear a story in just a minute of someone who has made a decision to follow Jesus as their leader. Baptism is a symbol. It isn't what saves you. It's a symbol of what happens when you personally make a decision to believe in Jesus. Uh, I've said it this way a couple times. A baptism is kind of like the wedding ring of the Christian faith, right? It's, it's a symbol of what's happened internally. It's a symbol that you took your old life, like when we go underwater here, it's a symbol of your old life was buried, and through your faith in Jesus, you're coming up a new creation in Jesus. And so throughout the morning, this morning, we are baptizing three people uh, we spread them out into all three services so that each service would get to see how someone get baptized and hear a testimony and a story. Uh, every person that you see baptized at Renovation Church, uh, they have at least one sponsor uh, with them, and that's someone who's had a significant spiritual impact on their life. And that is a great honor in our church. It should be your desire of everyone sitting here that one day that you're in the baptismal with someone else as a sponsor, as a spiritual influence in their life. And so at this point, I'm going to call uh, Tori and her sponsors up on stage. And uh, she's going to share her wonderful story with us. Hello. My name is Tori Gaffney. In college, I searched for salvation in a toxic, manipulative relationship. I changed myself to serve the guy that I was dating at the time. I traded in my God-given traits, my talents, and my quirks for ones that I thought would please him. I convinced myself that he was the only way to peace and that we were perfect for each other. However, the Holy Spirit inside of me knew that something was wrong and nudged me to finally break up with him. It was then that I spiraled into my darkest season, one filled with panic attacks, suicidal ideation, and an identity crisis. 
I had changed myself so drastically for the man that had been my everything that I no longer knew who I was. Something, thankfully, led me to the church that was next to campus a few days after the breakup. And it was there that I attended a Wednesday night dinner and a Bible study. The topic that night was about letting go of our worries and finding rest in Jesus. Everything within me broke down, and I sobbed. I explained to the pastor and other people there what had happened, and they prayed for me, and they consoled me. That night felt like the first step of a mature, meaningful, real-life relationship with Jesus. The Jesus Christ who indeed loves everybody, but also the Jesus Christ who weeps for the brokenhearted. The Jesus Christ who gives rest to the weary. The Jesus Christ who comforts the outcasts. And the Jesus Christ who I find my identity in. I learned that Jesus wants to hear about my positive thoughts, but he's also there to take in the negative ones too. He loves me so much that he took the blame for me on the cross so that I didn't have to suffer. He doesn't want his children to suffer from suicidal ideation like I did. He created relationships to be beautiful representations of God's love for the church, not emotionally abusive, manipulative manifestations of one's will for one another. He weeps for the brokenhearted and the unjust in the world, and he wants us to do the same. Jesus is so much more than I ever imagined. And it is only because I went through the lowest of lows that I was met with the King of Kings. Today, I have with me my sponsor, who's also my husband, David. He reminds me daily of the love of Christ, and he is not afraid to lovingly remind me to show that precious love to others or myself. I have learned so much from him about God, the Bible, and how a man should treat a woman. And I thank God for that every single day. Amen. It's, you know what I love about this is you get to hear from each other. Sometimes I think we could sit in this seat and you hear about it, faith in Jesus and you go, oh, I wish I was a better Christian and it's good to hear from you. Our lives are broken, right? Every one of us, it's just messy, and we have Jesus, and we're so thankful for that. And I just, it's just good to hear from other people, so thank you, Tori. Uh, I want to take us back to our passage now, because I, I want to look at a hard question from it. Okay, when you read about those tenants in the vineyard, they, they, they beat the servants, they kill the son, they murder the son in cold blood, do you believe that those tenants deserve punishment? Do you believe that there should be justice for the son who was killed or for the servants who were beaten? We read that and we go, yes, we do. Absolutely, there should be justice. But then what about your sin? Should there be justice for your sin? If we start thinking about ourselves, we go, well, that's different. Because... Well, I, if you if you understood my situation and what just the pressure I've been under, my family of origin, my if we look at our own lives, we say, but give me some grace, cut me some slack, show me some mercy. 
we just have the hardest time in the world identifying ourselves as the tenants in this story. We're kind of like the people who were listening that day. You know, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they respond to Jesus. It's in verse 16. And they say, oh, God forbid. And it's kind of a, a curious phrase. In some other translations, it's a little easier to understand their, what they're saying. Some of them read as, oh, surely not. God would never do that. In other words, you know, God would never bring justice on me. But indeed, this is what the Bible teaches. That our sin leads to punishment, which leads to death, which without Jesus leads to hell. Now, Romans 6.23 says it this way. It says, for the wages of sin, that's like the result of sin, what will come into your life because of sin is death. It's going to be separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But without the forgiveness of Jesus, like Tori talked about, without letting him die in our place, then the wages of sin, the result of sin, the punishment of sin, it's still on us. And we'll be separated from God for not only in this life, which is crucial, but also for all of eternity. We've got to recognize that God is the owner of our vineyard. And God is pursuing you in love. I mean, I felt like she said it so well. He, he weeps over us as we're lost. One of the things I think is really interesting, everybody reads the Bible through their own cultural glasses. And I think we, we read the story of the parable of the tenants, and what jumps out at us is that phrase where he's like, and then the owner enacted punishment and justice on the tenants, and they were killed. And we think, oh, that's a little intense. And we see the justice right away, but what we miss is the patience of God. Look how patient God was in pursuing them. He sends a servant. They beat him. I mean, he could have ended it right there, right? He sends another servant. They beat him again. He sends another servant. He's patiently pursuing them. He sends his own son. We, we react to the justice of God. We go, oh, God is just like too intense for me. But I was just thinking about this while we were singing in the service. I thought, you know what? If we were God, we would be way more intense on justice and way less patient in mercy. He's patiently pursuing you because he wants you to know the life that is truly life, as the Bible says. He wants you to have eternal life. And that's God's heart for you. For some of you, he's sending you messengers right now. Maybe your friend telling you about him or your family member. It's me talking to you right now. God is sending people into your life so that you could know the life that is truly life, eternal life. Will you turn your life over to Jesus? Do you need to make Jesus the cornerstone of your life and accept his forgiveness? In fact, before we end the service, I, I actually want to give you an opportunity to do that today. There may be some of you that you need to make that decision today. Not tomorrow, today. So let's just do this. Just for a minute or so, would you just bow your head and everybody in the room, just close your eyes just for a minute. If you've never made this decision before, and today you need to tell Jesus for the very first time that you believe that he died on the cross in your place. And through your faith, he would forgive everything you've ever done. And you need today, for the first time, make him your cornerstone. To say, Jesus, I believe I am turning my life over to you so I can build it on you. That's how we're saved. That's how we become an actual follower of Jesus. And if that's you, and you need to have your sin forgiven, you need to become his follower, to put him first in your life, 
I urge you to make the decision today. Not tomorrow, today. And what I want you to do, if you need to do that, I, it's always great to like just draw a line in the sand and say, yep, today is the day. I'm putting him first today. I'm believing today. What I want you to do, no, everyone has their eyes closed, but just so you can mark this day, what I want you to do is just courageously, but just quietly, I want you to just stand up where you're at to say, yep, that's me. That's me. I'm putting Jesus first. I'm believing he died for me. I'm going to become his follower. If that's you and you need to do that today, accept his forgiveness, would you just stand wherever you're at? Go ahead right now. I'll give you about 10 seconds or so. If you just need to accept his forgiveness for you, his pursuit of you, his love for you, and let that into your life to be forgiven, would you just accept that today and just stand wherever you're at? Anybody need to do that in this service? All right. You know, if, if you're thinking about it, it's a decision you can make. Uh, you can open your eyes as well as <laughs> look at me. If you're thinking about it, this is a decision that you can make at any time. It doesn't have to be in church. It doesn't have to be publicly. It could be by the side of your bed tonight to say, Jesus, I'm ready to make you a cornerstone. Uh, as we close the service, I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to thank God for what he's doing, uh, not only in our lives, not only in our lives as Christians, as we just study the word, so he helps us put him first, but also in the lives of those who are coming to faith. i got to tell you, at first service this morning, uh, we saw not one, not two, not three, but four people uh, stand up and give their life to Christ. Uh, it was crazy. Um, and uh, just cool. So... I believe that's, that's not something that we just go, oh, on to the next thing. I want to just take a moment and just praise God for that too. So uh, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for what you're teaching us through your word. We are so grateful for it. And God, we thank you for just the new life. Uh, we thank you. We praise you for what you did in Tori's life. God, that she was broken and lost and in a dark place, but she met you, the Savior. You are real, and we praise you for that, God. And God, I praise you for the four people this morning who've already decided to make you their cornerstone. And we just pray for them. Would you watch over them? Would you make sure the devil doesn't steal the seed in these early hours of faith? And may they grow into an amazing, amazing flower for you, God. I would just enhance your kingdom. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.